Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we start today's episode, I want to take a minute and remind you that it makes a huge difference when you rate and review the podcast. It really goes a long way in helping other people discover our work and stories. So if you like what you hear today, I hope you will take a minute at the end and give us a shout out. Today's episode is with Tracy Walder, fresh out of college, the bubbly blonde USC sorority girl, joined the CIA Counterterrorism Center for Weapons of Mass Destruction. Less than a year into the job, she found herself in the heart of the 9-11 war room, standing side by side with then-President George W. Bush and gathering intelligence on the world's most dangerous terrorists. The attacks took Tracy to the Middle East, where she spent her days riding in the dark trunks of cars, interrogating would-be suicide bombers, gathering life-saving intelligence, and witnessing death and war up close. At 25, she came home, graduated from Quantico, and became an FBI agent. Throughout this extraordinary career, Tracy had a dream in the back of her head that what she really wanted to do was be a history teacher. Today, Tracy is a mom and a teacher at an all-girls high school in Dallas, Texas. Her most popular class, Spycraft, teaching teenage girls the art of espionage. Today, we talk about attending poison school, terrorism, sexism, preconceived notions, the future of women and girls in national security, and why we should all have faith in our path and purpose. Here's today's interview with the brave, courageous, and wise Tracy Walder. Tracy, thank you and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for having me. How would you introduce yourself? My name is Tracy. Uh, First and foremost, I'm a teacher. I'm a history teacher. I love what I teach. I love the students I work with. I teach at an all-girls school. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a former staff operations officer with the CIA. What was the backdrop of your childhood? Um, The backdrop of my childhood, um, I grew up in a two-parent household. I have a a younger brother. I would say I was always the rule follower. Um, I was always the one that wanted to make sure I did what was 
expected of me. Um, I had two very supportive parents. My father is a psychologist. Um, my mother was a stay-at-home mother until she decided to go back to work as a banker when we were a little bit older. Um, <clears throat> it was a very sort of cookie-cutter kind of idyllic community. I kind of grew up in a house where as gifts we really didn't get things. We got experiences. I don't I don't think I fully appreciated that as a teenager, um, but it kind of came back around. Um, to me, as an adult, uh, we would go on a lot of trips to foreign countries and have a lot of experiences, and I think that's what really got me later in life, uh, sort of into the travel book. It sounds like you had a great parents. I did. Still do. <laughs> so you just shared with me the backdrop of your childhood, your teenage years, who were you on the inside versus the outside? You know, my teenage years, I would say were pretty tough. Um, girls started bullying me. Um, they would blame me for the acne that I had, the gap that I had between my teeth and, and, and really pretty severe stuff. Um, punching, hitting, um, sort of, uh, putting toilet paper all over my desk. Um, and, you know, I had teachers and things that tried to get involved and girls were suspended sort of here and there. But I would say it really, really continued until the end of about 10th grade. So I would have been about 15, 15 and a half. Um, and all of the sudden, it just, it stopped overnight. Um, it just stopped. Um, but I think sort of the damage was done, if you will, to my self-esteem, because those are pretty formative years. After high school, what's next for you? Um, after high school, I applied to USC. Um, I had a teacher that was I would say pretty inspirational to me. I've always had a love of history and I really decided I want to be a high school history teacher. Um, I applied to USC, I got in um, and I majored in history there. And I think USC was a positive turning point for me. And so I could, in a way at USC, be anonymous and I didn't have to really be reminded every day of the bullying that I had. And it sort of really gave me an opportunity to spread my wings and kind of build some of my confidence back up. You spoke to your academics, sort of socially, you know, where are you? What is your life like there? So at USC, I, I showed up, I decided to get involved in Greek life, and I joined the Delta Gamma sorority and held several leadership positions within it. Great. You graduate from USC, and why we're here today is to talk about several things, but certainly your time with the CIA and FBI. Walk us through how you go from sorority member and grad to the CIA. I would have to back up a little bit into my junior year in college. Um, my junior year in college, USC has a major thoroughfare called Truesdale Parkway. A, a lot of recruiters would sort of set up tables in there. So when kids were going back and forth on their bikes to classes, they could drop off resumes to them. And as we were going through Truesdale Parkway, there was a table set up that said CIA looking for history and English majors. And so I think I just decided why not? It's really sort of how I've always lived my life. So I gave them uh, a copy of my resume, really not expecting a call back. Um, and about 
two months later or so, um, they called me. Actually, my roommate in my sorority house picked up the phone and told me that it was my CIA recruiter. Um, and from there, you go to an interview, and that was in L.A. Um, and then from there, they decided to bring me out to Washington, D.C. to take a polygraph, have a psychological exam, and a physical exam. Um, I passed that, and then in November of my senior year, they offered me a conditional offer of employment that was contingent upon my graduation from college. You graduated from USC and joined the CIA. What were your early days with the Central Intelligence Agency? My early days were interesting, um, very encouraging, very empowering. Um, I had been placed in the Counterterrorism Center, and we have to remember now that seems like a big deal. Um, but this was would have been the summer of 2000. So at this point in time, the Counterterrorism Center was not sort of the place where everyone really wanted to be. People wanted to be working kind of Latin American counter-narcotics or kind of Eurasia, Russia area. And so the folks that were working in the Counterterrorism Center were a lot, a lot of women primarily, and then also a lot of young folks who were very, very new um, to the CIA. It was a very um, regular job, meaning, you know, at kind of nine to five, if you will. Um, you know, I worked in a cubicle. Um, I had specific targets that I was responsible for. It was a very sort of normal job, if you will. What is the trajectory and what does it mean to be a CIA agent? When I was there, the CIA was structured a little bit differently than it is now. We had something called the Directorate of Intelligence, and that's where a lot of folks with, say, PhDs, master's degrees, foreign languages, people who have really deep dives into Egypt, Egyptian studies, things like that, um, they primarily work there gathering intelligence um, on all these different places. Then we have the Directorate of Operations, which was the directorate that I was in. And, and what that they are responsible for is gaining human intelligence. So it's not necessarily a position that you're awarded to. It's just a position that you're sort of tracked to and given when you apply. So for me, when I applied, um, I would have been definitely unqualified to be in the Directorate of Intelligence because I simply had a BA in history. Um, Instead, the Directorate of Operations was sort of, a, I guess, a better fit for me um, in that you're kind of using more of your people skills and sort of the baseline skills that you have in being able to analyze and assess and sort of spot different facts that would help you solve a puzzle. And when you say you're assigned to a target, what does that mean? So it depends on what sort of branch you're put in. Um kind of one of the ways that they organize um, is that I was in the weapons of mass destruction group. That's a very kind of nebulous idea, right? It's a very large idea. And so they sort of have to break it up piecemeal, if you will. And so different people within my group are in charge of different sections of the world. So I was kind of in charge of one section of the world. Um, and then from there, Again, because I was in the Directorate of Operations, you're sort of identifying people, terrorists, objects that would be helpful in terms of giving you information to get what you ultimately want in the end. And what part of the world were you assigned to? I would, I have to be somewhat um, 
cagey about it, um, but mostly um, Europe and North Africa. You said you joined the CIA in 2000. Obviously, 2001 was a huge year for our country. Where were you on 9-11? It's funny. Um, I remember exactly where I was and exactly what I was wearing. Um, that's how fresh it sort of is in my mind, even though it's been a while. Um, I was sitting at my desk um, and at CIA, um, we really don't have access to the open internet. You're not allowed to bring your phone um, into the office or anything like that. So the reality is, is we didn't necessarily know, like the second the plane hit, I didn't see it. Um, but a friend called me from a different office and told me to kind of turn on my sort of closed circuit news source. And I did that just in time to see the second plane hit. And I would say we immediately knew that it was a terrorist act. I think the first plane hitting, I don't think we realized, but the second one we did. There was this overwhelming sense of guilt. Uh, this was our fault. And I think that's a lot for you know a 22-year-old, 23-year-old to sort of carry around. We should have been able to stop this. And I think to this day, it's very difficult for me to you know watch 9-11 tributes. Um, I think Obviously, the, what happened to the victims is earth-shattering, but I think for us, too, we felt that we were the reason they died, and I think that's a lot of guilt to sort of carry around, but we didn't really have time to sort of think about that, if you will, um, and we sort of went right into operations mode of, of getting things done, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I would say my life completely changed in that moment. How did it change, and at what point do you end up being in the thick of it in the Middle East? Immediately. Um, so the day actually before September 11th, I was read into a program by the CIA. And I remember asking, you know, will we need to use this program? And they said, oh, no, not unless there's a huge terrorist attack. Um, and obviously, sure enough, there was. And so I kind of became at the forefront of that program. And the thing about that is that you know, Afghanistan at the time was a, I believe there was 11 and a half hour time difference. So when it was morning in the US, it was evening there and vice versa. And so I basically was working like an opposite shift, if you will, meaning I would go to work either at night or go to work in the morning and work, you know, 16 hours um, on that particular program. So it, I would say it definitely changed. And it was very, very small at that point in time. And there were only four of us working on the program and President Bush would be in there and senators would be in there. Um, George Tenet, who was the head of the CIA at the time, would be in there almost all the time. Um, he brought us Thanksgiving dinner in there. Um, a lot of times we would sleep in there. And so it was just sort of a very different um, situation than sort of this, if you will, nine to five kind of job. At what point do you end up on the ground in the Middle East? So I left that program up after about four or five months. Um, and I ended up in the Middle East about five or six months after that. Explain the types of places you were traveling to and are things that you witnessed that are still with you. Um, uh, so I, I visited, again, I have to be somewhat general, um, I visited war zones. Um, and I think, you know, in particular in the war zone, one of the things that, that, that really stuck with me um, was watching someone die um, 
right next to me. It was, I had hurt myself. I'd fallen down a flight of stairs. And so I was taken via helicopter to uh, our subsequent Air Force base that was there. And they sort of have tent hospitals. They're kind of canvas hospitals. And all of a sudden, alarms just started going off. And a suicide bomber right outside of our compound um, had blown himself up. And they were bringing in um, local casualties. And they just sort of lined them all up next to me. Um, And I remember trying to get out of the bed because I just wanted to help. And they sort of strapped me back down. And next to me, everything sort of quieted down after a while. And next to me was a woman. And I would say... I don't mean to upset your viewers, but her, her skin was, was melting off basically, but she was still alive because she was moaning. And, you know, I asked what was going to happen to her and they're like, we, all we can do is just keep her comfortable and sort of give her morphine. Um, but I just remember looking at her, I roll my head over and she, you could still see kind of the whites in her eyes and I, I she stopped breathing. Um, and I think that was just sort of a huge moment for me. I had obviously never watched someone die before, but at the same time, it was crazy for me to think that these terrorists were doing this to their own people as well, because that's who all of these casualties were. Um, also, I had, uh, in this same country, about a month before that, I had had a conversation um, with a d- detainee, um, and I was just trying to get information out of him. And I remember you kind of have to get to know them, get to know what they're doing, why they're there, why they're terrorists. And I, I asked him, I said, you know, why why do you hate America so much? What is it about us that, you know, really upsets you? And I remember him saying, you know, we don't really, we dislike America, but what we dislike more is, are the Jews. And we dislike the way that America has dealt with the Israel question. And I remember at that moment, um, you know, I think it's the Robert Frost poem, two woods diverged in a path, and uh, two roads diverged in a path, and I took the one less followed. I thought, do I tell him I'm Jewish now, or do I wait and tell him I'm Jewish later? Part of me really wanted to tell him I was Jewish in that moment, but I didn't, because um, I knew that would compromise the amount of information um, that I would get from him. Um, kind of the third thing that really stuck out to me was being uh, in a in another Middle Eastern country. And as a, as a white woman, you know, growing up in the United States, I don't know necessarily what it feels like uh, to be a minority. I'm a member of kind of our majority race. And I think for me, I I recognize that there's privilege that comes with my whiteness. Um, And being in this Middle Eastern country, I always try to be respectful, cover my head, wear, you know, long sleeve clothes or wear a burqa or wear a abaya. You always try to be respectful of the country you're in. And so in this particular country, I I had covered my head, Um, but I was in a souk, which is kind of an open air market. And people were hanging off the trees trying to get a look at me, staring at me, following me, taking pictures of me. And I actually, it was the first time I realized how it must feel to be different and to be kind of not the majority. At the time, it was uncomfortable, but I'm really glad that I felt that way for the time that I did. Speaking to that, you are a white American woman, and the CIA is sending you in to interrogate terrorists. And I think the the wide assumption would be that most terrorists don't have a lot of respect for white American women. 
if that's true, why do you think they sent you into these negotiations? I don't think that that was really thought about. I mean, the reality is, is you have to remember that they're complacent. They're already prisoners. That that really was never an issue for any of them. You also, well, first of all, I'm interested. I'm interested about the process of interrogation. And I read that you were riding in the trunks of cars and you know meeting with suicide bombers. What was your day to day? The the process of doing your job and navigating a very risky, life-threatening environment? Um, so a lot of times, uh, to and from sort of our black sites in war zones, um, I would I would go in the trunks of cars um, just because it is perceived as, as not good uh, for a male and a female who are, you know, sort of unmarried uh, to be riding in a car together. And I don't know that I really thought much about it. I just sort of did it, if you will. Um, another thing that really stuck with me was actually when I was in Europe. This was a, a Western European country. And um, the high-ranking officials of European intelligence services were all asked to sort of attend this meeting. And prior to this meeting was a very kind of formal, fancy dinner, if you will. Um, and obviously I attended. Um, and these kind of mix you up and sit you with other folks from other Western European countries. And I had at my table, to the right of me, um, was the gentleman from the French intelligence service. And that was somewhat awkward, given um, our current situation. We, I think, had just invaded in Iraq, or were just going to. Um, and this was back when we sort of had freedom fries and all of that. Um, he was not really willing to talk with me or engage with me. So I, I spent most of the evening talking with the gentleman on my left, who was from the Irish um, intelligence service and he was a very very nice man and we got along very well and he just said something that was very profound and he said you know look my country has been in a civil war for years for decades for centuries um, and thousands of people have been killed as a result of this civil war and no one's really sort of done anything to help us you lose over 2,000 people. And although it's incredibly heartbreaking, in one day, you expect all of us to drop everything, go to war and help you. And I, I think that just really made me stop um, in my tracks and sort of examine where the U.S. sort of fit in the world, if you will. I think as a really young person, you tend to think that you know you're the most important or we're the most important or what's happened to us is the worst and it really helped put things in perspective for me Speaking to being a young adult, how old were you during your time with the CIA? Um, so I was at the CIA from ages 21 to 25, almost 26. You eventually decide to leave. Why? 
And that was probably the hardest, one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. During my time at the CIA, I won a lot of awards, made lifelong friends. Um, I, I, I truly loved it there, and I, I believe I really flourished there. But one thing I realized, and this was sort of a turning, another turning point for me when I was in a North African country, um, speaking with another sort of operations officer and his wife, saying how much this life didn't appeal to them anymore. They had no time for their children. They had no time to be normal. And I knew that that was something about the CIA that was never going to change. It would always be an overseas intelligence organization, always. And so I kind of realized that I think by that point, I wouldn't say I was burnt out, but I'd really experienced a lot of it. And I realized, you know, now is a time to leave. I was very still incredibly passionate about terrorism um, and the Middle East. I'd really grown to appreciate it. And I thought, okay, I can still do this, work at the FBI, but just do this domestically so I could sort of have more of a home life, if you will. And so that's why I decided to leave. But I left on on really, really, really good terms. I cried the day I left. As part of your job, you had to assume aliases. Is that correct? Yes. Can you talk about that at all or give us examples? The CIA won't let me. (laughs) I'm sorry, Kimmy. I think that's very valid. (laughs) People have refused to answer questions for um, significantly less uh, reasons. Oh, great. Okay. Um, I know you fell in love with the Middle East and the people of the Middle Mm -hmm. East. What misconceptions do you feel Westerners have about Muslims in this part of the world? Yeah, um, that's a great question, especially being Jewish as well. You know, I was raised in a Jewish household. I wouldn't, I would definitely not say that we're very religious, but, and I kind of credit my parents in that they had a very loving and open sort of worldview. And I do, you know, I know some of my other Jewish friends did not have that same worldview. And I think what I realized the most were that Muslims and Jews actually have a lot in common and Islam is a beautiful religion. Um, I think there's several people, right, or hundreds of people who have perverted it and um, sort of used it for violence and used it for hate. But I would say that every religion sort of has that unfortunate aspect of it. And Muslims are no different. Um, Islam was very much a loving religion. I came to find out um, the Middle East is just exquisite. It's full of life and culture. And I think I realized it's not something to be feared um, at all. It's something to be understood and appreciated. Thank you. That was beautiful. A very different question. When you and I talked about doing this interview and you were sharing some of your background, you told me that as part of your job with the CIA and in this part of the world, you went to poison school. Can you share anything about poison school? <laughs> um, sure. That was a very different kind of school. Um, you, when you're at the CIA, you know, every job sort of has professional development, if you will. Um, and, you know, at the CIA, I was assigned to the Weapons of Mass, mass Destruction Group. Um, and one of the things that they want you to do is kind of develop and understand the things that you're working with. Um, and so what I had to do was attend uh 
a school um, in a building that was off-site of CIA headquarters and sort of learn how these things were made, learn how cheaply they're made, learn how easily they're made. We looked at the Al-Qaeda manual and saw that there were directions in there of how to make some of these things. So that was a a pretty interesting um, school. I I still have my certificate of completion from it um, very proudly (laughs) displayed. That's really amazing. After you leave the CIA, what is your next life chapter? After I left the CIA, my next life chapter was um, I began my FBI special agent training at Quantico in Virginia. What does that training entail and what was your job at the FBI? So I was a special agent with the FBI. Um, The training at the FBI is very, very different than the training at CIA. Uh, You see a lot of movies at CIA that's very physical, and the training is not very physical there. It's very much psychological, um, learning how to follow people, learning how to tail people without being followed, those kinds of things. At FBI, it's very physical. You have to pass um, a PT or physical fitness test. Um, You have to have weapons training, weeks and weeks and weeks of weapons training. You have to have situational awareness training, which they have a mini city or a mock city that's called Hogan's Alley, and they kind of throw different situations at you, if you will. And so that training was about four and a half months-ish for the FBI. What is your day-to-day life as an FBI agent? So I would start off with like a six or seven mile run every day, usually at about 4.30 or 5 a.m. I am a morning person. Um, And then you would go into the office usually um, and sort of because I was a new agent, you sort of have to... You work on your squad, but you have to experience other squads as well. Um, so I would either be going dumpster diving, meaning I would have to go in the back of a trash truck and go through it for the day, or I would have to be um, doing surveillance on someone, or I would be working the case um, that I was assigned to. So that could kind of vary. Sometimes you could be going out to interview witnesses. Um, and then sort of your day is over um, at you know five or six o'clock and you, you go home. Sometimes um, you might cut out early if you're doing surveillance or an arrest that's in the evening, um, simply because of hours. And how are the CIA and FBI cultures different? So the CIA is an intelligence gathering organization. Um, they do not place people in handcuffs. Um, they don't bring people to trial. They are simply there to gather intelligence. Whereas the FBI is a law enforcement organization. Um, they are there to try and convict people um, who have committed crimes mostly across state lines. So they're two very different organizations. In both of these cultures, I'm interested as a young woman, and you describe yourself as somebody who was incredibly girly and feminine, you're in your 20s, and that people had a hard time processing this. It was definitely a culture shock for me. I had come from CIA where no one seemed to have any issues with my girliness whatsoever. Um, and then I came into the FBI and people had 
including other women, quite frankly, had a serious problem with the way that I looked, the way that I acted, the way that I liked to paint my nails. Um, and that, that became a really big problem because I felt that I was sort of in a, in a strange way circling back to kind of being bullied, right, in elementary school, middle school, high school, for no reason, for just being who I was. Um, and that was incredibly hurtful. And I think it was even more hurtful sometimes coming from the women, um, because you kind of think, oh, well, let's form a sisterhood. There's not as many of us. Um, and sometimes it was worse with them. And what about your experience with the male agents? That was pretty terrible. Um, my This is kind of going back to my FBI training. Um, I think that the male instructors there really did not want me to succeed, did not want me to graduate. I mean, that be, that became extremely, extremely clear. Um, and one of the first things you have to do is learn witness interview skills. So I had to conduct a witness interview. Um, and I wore, they, they asked you to wear a suit. So I wore a suit that I had worn, oh gosh, 20, 30 times probably at the CIA uh, without incident. And after I conducted the interview, a female instructor took me aside and said, what I made my suit and my presence in the suit made the male instructor uncomfortable and I should write an apology letter. Um, and, you know, I was young and now I kind of regret writing that letter, but I did. Um, you know, and it, it got to the point where other male instructors didn't believe I worked at the CIA prior, just kind of little things, um, that started to add up after a while to sort of really diminish my sort of mental state, if you will, my confidence. Did you feel you were constantly proving yourself? Constantly, constantly, all hours of the day, constantly. Which is exhausting. Well, and it, it led to a very isolating existence, if you will, at the FBI Academy, um, because I didn't trust anyone. It, it was unusual to me. I'd never really sort of been in that situation before, but it was definitely a very isolating existence. You spoke to diminishing your confidence, but clearly mm -hmm. something within you, the tenacity and perseverance is astounding. Where does that come from? I think that comes from my parents. Um, you know, my parents have always kind of had the attitude of stop complaining. If you don't like something, do what you can to try to change it. You know, be part of the solution, if you will. Sort of kind of always had been that way in my sorority house. Things were frustrating me, so I ran for a vice president role and I won it. And I've just kind of always been that person rather than to just like kind of give up on it. Um, sort of show them that you're better than it. And maybe in a weird way, that's what drives me to be successful um, is this constant sort of need to prove myself, which is not a very good thing to say, but um, maybe that is sort of what drives me. I get that well. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's an honest thing to say. I think some people may be curious and talking openly about some of these things how you're able to do that because certainly the perception is so much of this information is classified and highly confidential how are you able to speak openly about your experiences 
So first of all, my time there was never undercover. Um, some people are undercover and that does pose an issue for them. Also, what's made my life a lot easier is obviously my upcoming book. Um, my book has been cleared by the CIA. Everything that's in it has been cleared by the CIA. So it actually makes it quite easy for me to know exactly what I can and can't talk about because it's already been vetted through them. Got it. Eventually you leave the FBI. Why did you decide to make that mm -hmm. change? You know, I think I had had it. Um, I had hoped that after I graduated from the academy, that sort of the harassing would stop. Um, it did not. It really just got worse. But I think I also at that point had a support system and that I was actually sent back to work um, in Los Angeles, which is where I was from. Um, so I kind of had my family there as this little safety net that I could land on, if you will. And I just decided, you know what, maybe this is sort of the universe's way of telling me it is now time to achieve your lifelong goal of being a high school history teacher. And so I had saved up money and I decided to leave um, and I enrolled like probably two weeks later, a month later, um, in a program to uh, get my master's degree and become a high school history teacher. You currently are a high school teacher at an all girls high school. And I know you created a course, Spycraft, an espionage course. Can you tell us what that course is and how what the reception has been? And my first year at Hockaday, about 10 years ago, I was getting so many questions from the girls um, just about what I used to do. And then that would sort of parlay itself into, hey, what's going on in this country? What's going on in this country? What do you think about what's going on in this country? And so I think from there, I realized there's a need and I need to fill it. So I created this class. Um, it first started out as sort of more teaching them about espionage and espionage techniques. Um, and it sort of evolved from there. One of your students was quoted saying, Miss Walder is my teacher and now she is teaching the world. It's time to take an AK-47 to the glass ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> What change is possible with more women at the table when it comes to best practices in law enforcement, national security, foreign policy, in your opinion? In your so, opinion. So I think, and my first kind of answer to this question is maybe a little off topic, but I think the kind of the first piece of that puzzle is the fact that there is clearly a need amongst high school students. There's clearly a desire to know what's going on in the world. And there's really not a source of information that sort of boils things down into clear and concise ways that they can understand. So I sort of started giving them these presentations. If something happens, they're very reactionary um, in Syria or Iraq or whatever. And it's just like understanding Syria in two minutes or less for high school students. And from there, they sort of branch out into their own careers. And I think kind of the second part of that question is, is I, I am a feminist and I would love, and I love gender equality, but at the same time, we have to recognize that our brains are wired differently. And I do think that that's a good thing. And I think that's something that is very conducive to solving some of our greatest kind of foreign policy challenges. I think women are extremely good at the art of compromise. And that's what I think a lot of this 
I think that's a, a trait that could really lend itself to solving foreign policy problems. I also think we're really good at having empathy. I think we're also really good at kind of reaching understandings. And that voice is sorely missing at the negotiation table. You're clearly teaching and inspiring the next generation of girls, without question. What do you hope they take away from your story and from their experience is having you for their teacher? I'd say that's, again, sort of a two-part answer. The first part is is to be yourself, no matter what. Don't, don't try to change to be this package that you think whatever the job is wants you to be. Um, obviously, be yourself within reason, but don't change who you are at your core. Um, and sort of the second piece to that is to... I think these girls genuinely care about the world, I think sometimes there's a lack of understanding about that the world. And if I can teach them some understanding about the world, um, then perhaps they can, going into their careers, whatever they may be, um, sort of make better decisions for the world. Your passion, clearly, for teaching is so evident. <laughs> Your other passion is being a mom. Yes. And that was a long and winding road. Yes. Share with me that piece of you and how it was you became a mom. So I guess that might be where that tenacity <laughs> uh, kind of comes in. Um, I had uh, a hysterectomy. Um, uh, I, I knew that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for me to have a child. And so uh, we underwent IVF. Um, and I was really excited. We got 13 embryos. But all of the embryos died except for one. Um, and so we transferred that one um, to our surrogate. Um, and we found out she was pregnant. That was a little girl. And she's perfect. Um, but, you know, that was a process that I had to work through. And how old is she today? What's her name? Four. Her name is Sarah Grace. She has two names, like any good Southern girl. <laughs> so you're in the process of writing a book, The Unexpected Spy, which comes out in February. What was the process of writing your life for public consumption? You know, I am a relatively private person, um, and it, it did take me a while to get to the point of writing this book. Um, I would say it took a year and a half or two years to write it, and it took about two years to find a publisher as well. Um, a lot of people had a really hard time kind of reconciling the girly part of myself and teacher part of myself with the fact that I was at the CIA and the FBI. Um, but uh, my amazing editor believed in me at uh, Macmillan St. Martin's, and it's getting published. I'm really, really excited about that. And it's being turned into a television series? Correct. Um, Ellen Pompeo has a production company now called Calamity Jane, and she purchased um, the rights to develop it into a TV series along with ABC Studios. What do you think it'll be like to watch your life in a television series? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure. I've sort of, I, I don't want to say distance myself because I haven't distanced myself, but I know it'll be fictional, if you will. Um, you know, I, I think it is a little bit surreal. <laughs> um, I never really thought that I was all that interesting or worth, you know, writing a book about or a TV show about. Um, 
but I think for me, what will be, it will be exciting. Um, there's not a lot of female, uh, sort of superhero-ish, you know, um, characters out there. And if there are, they're seriously flawed. You know, if you look at Carrie from Homeland and things like that, we don't have, you know, our male characters don't seem to have to have flaws, but our female characters do. And I think that's unusual. And so I think it'll be really refreshing, in my opinion, to sort of see it put out there in a different way. Have they done casting? Do you know who's going to play you? No, I do not. That'll be a big day. I know. <laughs> I think your story and life experience speaks to a lot of stereotypes. How the world views the capability of somebody who is young and attractive and blonde. And as Americans, how we judge Muslim males. Do you agree with that? I do. I think that's the whole point of my book, you know, The Unexpected Spy. Um, we always approach people with expectations about them, and maybe we shouldn't. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <sighs> and the falsehood of it is, is apparent in, when you share mm -hmm. your story. You talk a lot about the question, why, and how that question can actually hinder and limit us as people. Can you explain why? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think the question why, um, that's just something I think a constraint that society has put in to us, right? This idea that we always have to have a reason for everything that we're doing. Because what I get a lot is, you know, why did you work at the CIA if you wanted to be a teacher? And why did you do this if you wanted to do that? But I think for me, if I had stood around and said, why am I going to go and work at the CIA when all I want to do is be a teacher, I wouldn't be the teacher that I am today. All, all of those decisions that I made without thinking about the why and the reasons behind why I was doing them came together to make me the teacher that I am today. And I think I'm a better teacher because I had those experiences. What do you hope that people take away from your story? I hope that people take away a little bit of understanding about the world um, and, and how the world works and how our perceptions are not always reality. And I also hope that too, people take away an understanding that women in general don't have to fit into this sort of box of preconceived notions that we have about them. And that can ultimately be damaging you know, to them and their psyche and just to be very open to the career paths that they choose. I'm going to end this with something we call rapid fire. Oh, no. You can do it. You fought terrorists. You can handle some rapid fire. Okay. True. Favorite movie? Shawshank Redemption. Favorite way to spend a Sunday? With my husband and my daughter. First childhood memory? My first childhood memory is actually being in dance class. My mom taking me to dance class. Mountains or ocean? Mountains. Favorite guilty pleasure? Real housewives of anything. Please don't judge me. No judgment whatsoever. Thing you want to do before you die? I really want to go back to the Middle East. Um, I'd really love to visit Israel. 
Um, and I would really like to go to Machu Picchu. First thing you do in the morning? Check my phone. Your hope for your daughter? My hope for my daughter is that she is a confident, fun-loving young woman who knows that she has all the support in the world and can be whoever she wants to be. Tell us where we can find you, follow you, pre-order your book so everybody can um, know what you're up to. So I'm mean, going to provide you with the links. You can pre-order my book on the Macmillan St. Martin's website um, or on um, through Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Tracy Walder. You are awesome and you are certainly a gift to your students and your daughter and I think everyone who listens to this interview. So thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Well, today's charity could not be more fitting. Girl Security is a charity on a mission to increase the representation of women in national security. They are on the front lines of empowering girls through mentoring, simulation training, and providing comprehensive education on our national security landscape. Their belief? That engaging girls will be the most important national security advancement of the 21st century. You can check them out at girlsecurity.org. Also, we've included a link so you can pre-order Tracy's book, The Unexpected Spy, on Amazon, and we hope you will. We will also be on the lookout for the aforementioned television series about her life. We can all binge watch it together. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego from Harmonix. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. As always, thank you for listening. I hope if you like today's episode, you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. A special thanks to Tracy, Girl Security, and you, our listening audience. Have a great day. And what is your day-to-day life at the eight? I hear your sweet girl. I am so sorry, Don't... Kimmy. Can I yes, just Yes, of make course, sure of okay. course. Go for okay. it. All right. Okay. Sarah Grace, you need to go downstairs, sweetheart. You can get a snack. Sarah Grace, I'm on the phone. In the pantry, get whatever you want. Okay, nothing like bribery. Oh, my God. I mean, like, I laugh at myself. I'm like, you can go. Yeah, look for cookies. Just do your thing, girl. (laughs) Have at it. You go, girl. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.